Hi there, this is Long John Neville once again, and the program comes to you through the facilities of WMCA right here in New York City. Alan Cornett is with us, pharmaceutical consultant for International Chemical Laboratories, and I'm delighted to say my guest tonight is Gene Shepard, well-known humorist, broadcaster, actor, author of a number of books and screenplays and numerous articles. And his new book is titled The Ferrari... Ferrari, pardon me. See that? I lost it up already. In the bedroom. <laughs> and it's published by Dodd, Mead and Company. And it is... Uh, well, we don't have to say that if it's a Shepherd book. It's excellent. Thank you, John. I'm pleased uh, to hear you. I just wanted to know about the Polish cabbage. Oh, John. Polish cabbage is one of the most powerful aphrodisiacs I know. Really? And I don't think you should bring it up because you sour. Could you spell Polish? Because my engineer is starting to write now. And I know that he wants to get... Where can you buy Polish cabbage? You don't buy Polish cabbage, John. You're in the presence of Polish cabbage. It's, it's, a, it's a stuffed... It's stuffed cabbage, actually, John. Yeah. And there, there's many secret ingredients that the true Polish cook knows that uh, have driven men mad, literally, stark mad, yeah. certain nights, especially after bowling in East Chicago, Indiana. I've seen guys just go out of their mind <laughs> after a little Polish cabbage and some... Kubasi and some some beer. God, what a combination. Makes Archie Bunker look like George Plimpton. Really? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you say it really works, though. Oh, does it work, John? Uh, I'll tell you this, though. I would suggest that if you're going to try stuffed cabbage as an aphrodisiac, make sure that your partner, your feminine partner, is also indulged. Uh, because it's oh, a, she has to have some too. Well, because it can. Do you be, share the same stuffed cabbage, or could you get individual ones? It's best to share it because stuffed cabbage comes in various potencies. I see. And How would I recognize the highest potency? Is makes yeah. your nose sweat when you eat it. Really? Yep. Uh, the the pungent spices and the and also too, there's a little double vision that occasionally develops. Well, I'm usually days. working in the dark after I have <laughs> my Polish cabinet. Well, John, I'm glad. I, I, I'm, I'm pleased that you're a student of this sort of occult uh, subject. Well, I'm really not. I, I'm just becoming aware of this tonight. But I, I was going to uh, ask Alan Cornett if he'd open the show for me because I wanted to go over to Carnegie. Do they have Polish cabinet no, there? No, not, they, not, the, not the real thing. You have to go to places like Hamtramck, Detroit, uh, Hegwish, Illinois. Do you think uh, if I call them that I could have an order sent by plane here tonight? Uh, I'd like to before I get back to my apartment. Oh, I see. You have uh, ulterior motives, what you're saying. No, interior motives. Aha. Well, all right, John. I have that subtle uh, distinction. I'll tell you this about... about uh, you see, uh, it isn't the same as stuffed cabbage or stuffed peppers that we see on, say, the Alka-Seltzer commercial. Right. Uh, nobody makes the wrong choice if he picks Polish stuffed cabbage. In fact, I, I had a girl one time, a red-headed Polish girl. What do you mean, one? Well, this was Oh, you one. mean this, this one plenty. particular one? Yes, and yes. She, well, she was in many ways more than one person. She was tremendous. She looked like about 35 cantaloupes having a fight coming on the street. Fantastic girl. Red hair, and, and uh, she was Polish, and this was in Toledo, Ohio, a town which 
You probably have been through yeah, it lately on occasion. You used to stand in that store and listen to the pipe organ. My God. In that department store. I lived some of the worst moments of my life in the Hotel Lorraine on Huron Street in yes. Toledo. Sounds a little like a star, the beginning of a W.C. Fields story. Yes. But on this historic occasion, being young and innocent, uh, I was invited to this girl's home on the flimsy pretext of enjoying a stuffed cabbage dinner. And she said, I'm going to fix you real Polish stuffed cabbage. And John, she did. And I have never forgotten it. In fact, I've never turned back since that night. Is that the girl that you told me about that you spent the next five days with after... <laughs> well, actually, John, uh, now that you bring it up that way, she, she, she was responsible for my hurried departure from Toledo. Uh, and that we'll, we'll talk about later when we get down to the, to the delicatessen and we'll discuss that. But uh, I remember sitting down, of course, I come from a, from a simple Midwestern family, and our idea of a, of a heady evening was an evening with uh, meatloaf, red cabbage, maybe a little mashed potatoes. And on a festive occasion, my mother would use tomato sauce on the meatloaf, oh. occasionally sliced, sliced olives on, say, a holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh, to sit down before a, a dish of, of this, this steaming, you can actually see the fumes coming off of uh, a really well-done Polish stuffed cabbage. And I sat down to that thing, and she was opposite me at the table there. Was one Parents of were away? Conveniently, yes. Yes. I, I, at that time, I, I was given, a, again, a flimsy excuse that they had been called out of town ex- unexpectedly an hour before. Yes. And uh, I sat down there, and I dug into that stuffed cabbage. And all I can say, John, is the ensuing evening, including the cabbage, was a totally psychedelic evening. It consisted of uh, cabbage and uh, ground meat, heady spices, uh, stifled cries of passion, uh, sweaty uh, pursuits in the dark. It was a fantastic evening, John. And ever since that time, I've had fun remembrances of Polish cooking. You know, uh, there's something I... I it, you mentioned just before when I we didn't want to talk about the past, really. However, I remember... Gee, I forget the year when I attended one of your weddings. It's the only one I had the pleasure of attending. I think it was your fourth wedding. And I remember that we had, you know, finger food and all that sort of thing. Yes, that was... But my... then you had... You yourself, though, I remember, had the Polish cabbage. Well, I found that when when uh, when moments in moments of extreme the God she was a great girl that she was a dwarf is that yes, one with your four symbols that's yes. right yeah. yes beautiful girl though talented yeah beautiful girl I remember when you used to carry her across the street when we when we left on uh, my shoulder yeah we left the uh, uh, the church and uh, I remember we went over to this Polish place where they were catering the affair. And uh, it, it was so romantic seeing you carrying her across well, the street on your shoulders. She was Latvian, of course, John. Oh, really? That and, I didn't know. The Lats have an implacable hatred for the Poles. I see. As well as their attitude towards the Estonians is well known. Uh-huh. And at the time that that, that 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 was an unfortunate situation. You recall that that wedding didn't last over 30, 40 minutes. We were divorced that afternoon, you remember. Oh, I thought it was the next day. See, I lost track of it. Well, that completely. was, of course, the legal formality. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Psychologically, it was all over 20, 30 minutes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think the uh, Polish cabbage wasn't prepared correctly? Because it seems it would be difficult for you to get a divorce that fast. It, unfortunately, John, it was too well prepared, I see. See, sometimes it is difficult to control yourself after Polish cabbage. I see. And you remember the awful incident that occurred right there in the in the lounge of the Essex Hotel. Yes. Okay. Uh, I want to say one thing, though, when we walked over with you to the uh, Dixie, uh, to your bridal suite. That was beautiful, the way they had it fixed up with crepe paper and things like that. That was, that was really the, romantic. Big, the, the big white bells, you remember those paper bells? I sure do, and, yeah. and the, the Japanese lanterns down there. Yeah. You know? Gee, that was, that was a beautiful, beautiful romantic day. If I ever became a writer, I would use that in a part of a novel, because it was just marvelous. I, I, I was wiping away tears. What, the, the, the incident at Dick, Dixie Hotel? Yeah. You don't want to talk about that, do you? Well, I mean, if you, you know, it's part of my life I don't often discuss, but uh, if, you, if you pursue, yes, I'm, I, 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 my life is an open, open book, John. Well, I, I think that some of our listeners might want to know what happened at the Dixie Hotel <laughs> Bridal Suite. <laughs> I'm afraid, though, John, that there might be some people who are listening tonight who may still be involved, and I, I would not like to entangle the innocent in things that I might come out. being very generous and fair. No, I'm also being very careful. Yeah. Uh, that was a hell of a night to be... No, I was, a little, I was a little despondent <laughs> uh, when I read in the paper that uh, recently you got married for the... Is it the eighth or ninth time and I was not invited? Well, I figure that it's getting... Uh, at this point, John, it's uh, to invite people to an event that occurs over and over again, John. <laughs> It's being repetition. Well, it's not only being repetition, but getting damn tired of it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I you know, I, I, after after the seventh one, and I got oh. I got I got five uh, Stromberg Carlson coffee makers from the same person on five yeah. successive weddings. It got a little sticky after. You never even sent me a thank you note. I sent you a bottle a bottle of uh, silver polish for the tray that I gave you for your fifth marriage. I figured, you know, you could polish it up again. Was that on it? That's right, yeah. I figured, you know, you could polish it up again and accept it as a new gift. It's under the pile of old used New Yorker magazines that I have. I keep that tray under there. Just sort of because I gave it to you, I guess. Well, I'm a sentimental person. Yes, you know. I know that. Let's take care of a little business, and then we'll be back uh, with Gene Shepard and Alan Cornett. And uh, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the Kelco calculators. Alan, I know you've been a fan of uh, Gene Shepherds for many, many years, and this is why I invited you to be here tonight, so that you could have an opportunity to talk to him. And unfortunately, you didn't have a chance to read the entire book. No, John. But uh, as you said, I have been a fan of uh, Mr. Shepherds for a long time. I'd like to start by saying Mr. Shepard is correct by saying Polish uh, stuffed cabbage is an aphrodisiac, and its uh, proof of its uh, efficacy is evidenced by the rising birth rate in Poland. However, uh, if you would make a deep study of it, which at one point in my life I did go into it, Romanian stuffed cabbage, where they add a touch of extra coriander, Mm. Uh, seems to uh, work 
a little bit better. Even even more uh, potent? Yes, a little bit more. However, I would not urge people to start off with the Romanian. Fiery, Romany girls. No, as a matter of fact, uh, you might uh, you might start off, in fact, Polish stuffed cabbage for the beginner and the, and the novice. I would not advocate it. I would suggest perhaps they would have uh, some Croatian stuffed cabbage. Mm -hmm. Start with that and gradually, you know, work your way up. You could begin with stuffed peppers, say, down at the Horn and Hard Art as a real start. Th that would be yeah. a, uh, a... You think that would work, too? No, it's, it's just to, to get you into the... Uh, the field oh, a, as a, as a neophyte beginning. You don't start right out playing against Arnold Palmer. But what I, would like to, uh, I, what I would like to uh, <clears throat> ask Mr. Shepard, and we were discussing it a little bit before the program, what is the difference, at least in your mind, uh, between a humorist, a satirist, a comic, and a comedian? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, they can all be... No, they, they tend to overlap at times. Uh, in fact, a man can be all four of those things at one in a given time. But humorous generally, but I'm not, I'm not copying out. There is a definite difference. And I think ultimately, to become pompous about it, the real difference between a humorist and a, and a, and a comic writer or a comic is that with the humorist, the laugh is a byproduct of what he said, whereas with a comic, it's the only end product. In short, it is very difficult to uh, remember really what a comic has said uh, after a couple of nights. You've, you've laughed at a comic. You can't really remember. You may remember a joke, and that's about it. But a humorist uh, gives you a new insight into life, or at least a different one, an aspect of life. He gives you a new view of something that you have lived with all your life. And, uh, you, may, and you may generally find yourself laughing at it. Uh, and they're rare birds, by the way, humorous, because that is in this time, because all the pressures today are for anybody who has any kind of talent in the humor direction to turn into a comic. That's due to primarily TV. When you show up on a TV show, they want you to make them laugh in 28 seconds before the Alpo commercial. Well, if I were asked the question, what I consider you, I would say you're a humorist. Uh, let's take another individual in the public realm who I consider a, uh, a humorist, mm -hmm. Woody Allen. Uh, Woody, I think Woody Allen uh, tends to, to uh, embody both. Uh, it depends on who, where you've seen me. If, if, if you see, I'm that way, too, in a way, and in that in the, you've probably seen Allen's public performances more than you've seen Well, Warren. what I'm referring specifically, I just finished reading his collection of short essays, mm -hmm. which I guess most of them were printed before in the New Yorker. Yeah. Uh, I think the book is called Getting Even. Yeah. It's short little I know thin the book, book. yeah. Uh, and I found myself laughing out loud, which I rarely do. But you will concede, though, that that's different than, than Allen's public performing. Yes. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say, that a man can embody both if he, if he has that particular talent. Most comics are not that talented. In other words, uh, this is, by the way, uh, by way of giving Alan a, a, a compliment. Most comics really depend on material. Most of them don't even produce the material. In other words, they, they'll buy uh, material from 25, 30 writers in the space of a year. Uh, and many of them uh, don't even know the meaning of what they're saying often. But it makes the audience laugh, so they'll whip it out. That's a comic. 
A comedian, a comedian is something else. Now, a comedian is a man who generally is a, is a comic actor. A, a man like, say, Jack Lemmon is an example of that. Uh, to me, he is a, is a comic actor, which is more of a comedian as, as opposed to a comic, who will walk out on, on, a, on a stage and do 20 minutes before the marimba band comes on. But his performance in actuality is uh, is merely mouthing what someone else has written. Quite often that's true. A comic a comic is, is quite often you can manufacture comics. I've known I've known agencies that will take a guy who is a fairly glib, brash guy. He's just a guy who doesn't mind getting up and grabbing the mic and hollering things into it. And he has a fairly decent appearance and they have built him into a comic. I've known this cases. He, he is no talent discernible except that he can make he just keeps whipping out one-liners, one after the other, and in 20 minutes, out of 100 one-liners, he may hit on one out of 10. But if he says them fast enough, he'll be having people laugh every minute if he gives 20 jokes a minute. That's the machine gun technique. And he gets off very quickly. Uh, he leaves fast, and on comes the singer. Uh, and he does quite well in clubs. Uh, how would you consider um, Art Buckwald? Uh, Buckwald is... I think uh, primarily a, I don't think Buckwell's stuff will last, if you're asking me that. Because, it's topical. Well, it's not only topical, but it tends to be very predictable. Buckwell has a specific, uh, and I like Buckwell's stuff sometimes, quite often in fact, but I think his things all are based on, the, he has a formula. Uh, the formula is the little uh, pseudo-play, where he, he hears a, a rumor in the, in the uh, Senate, Somebody says somebody else. Somebody says, oh, and now a hypothetical conversation between uh, Mr. Dulles or whoever it is and, uh, and uh, Charlie Dockweiler. And uh, he, in other words, he uses the same style over and over again, which is, comes out of the fact he has to fill five columns a week. Would you say uh, in the... I wonder if you'd let me say something. You keep saying... Oh, is it your, is it, is it your, is it your program? Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot. I mean, I don't like to, be, to talk about other people's work anyway because... Uh, it, it may sound like I'm trying to be a smart, uh, you know, smart, but I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm talking as a professional writer of humor, and uh, these people that we've all discussed are very talented people. Uh, certainly Buckwald is, and certainly Allen is, and Woody Allen's a very talented guy. Well, let me remind you, this is Dialogue Radio 57, WMCA, right here in New York City. Back with Gene Shepard, and... Uh, we have Alan Cornett with us tonight, and Alan, you were just in the... Uh... Yeah, I was going to ask uh, Mr. Shepard, uh, what is your opinion of, of the state of American humor today? Well, that's a question that uh, I, I think... Uh, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, humor uh, as a writing uh, product. In other words, uh, Mark Twain would have difficulty today finding a publisher. And for a number of reasons. Uh, he writes about an unfashionable part of the country, Missouri. Uh, he, he writes about uh, an unfashionable thing, riding on a raft. Uh, and, and, and in short, what I'm saying here is that, is that one of the problems today that writers have is that most magazines have gone into strongly the article field. And so you'll pick up the New Yorker and there'll be 3,500 pages of a... Of a of a giant profile on some guy that makes uh, Belgium cheeses. Uh, then there will be 
then there'll be a, a seven-page uh, review of a Lithuanian movie translated from the from the uh, Greek and reviewed by Pauline Kale. Then there will be... Uh, this is a typical example. So way in the front of the book, after you get through their 18-page their, their diatribe against uh, both Lindsay and Nixon, you will find two little pages, and that's called the fiction department. One is written by Donald Barthelm. The other page is written by Updike. And, and, and so... This is this is a this is a magazine that years ago many great humorists used to write for. Uh, Suedo chic. It was Suedo chic. Yeah, it was Suedo chic is right. Didn't doesn't Suedo chic later turn call himself Harvey and turned into a reviewer? But uh, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless the the uh, the problem is is difficult uh, and I. I've been writing most of my work has, has appeared in Playboy, which still does have a pretty good tradition of printing, publishing a lot of uh, fiction and non-article work a month. No, great word write. Well, no, that's not why guys write for them. You know, I wrote for Playboy before they paid John, and and so you know, there's always the cynical guy who says the reason the guy writes for a certain magazine because they pay. Well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That, that, that the magazine became successful around the world primarily because of the people who appeared in it. And, I mean, such people with the stature of Nabokov writes regularly for, for uh, Playboy. Uh, Raoul Dahl, Romain Gary. Uh, so anyone who, doesn't, who thinks the magazine is the center fold-out surrounded by a lot of puffery has never really read it. No, it's an excellent magazine. Yes. Now... The, the point that I make here, though, is that markets for writers who write really quality humor as opposed to the little, uh, you know, the little dollar book uh, that's the takeoff on Agnew or the little dollar book that's the photo takeoff on uh, Nixon uh, at, the, at dances or that kind of stuff. You know, that's called, that's called exploit humor, and it's sold. You see a pile of these next to the... Uh, next to the cash register in a, in a store that used to sell books but now sells Snoopy sweatshirts. And they still call themselves a bookshop. <laughs> and, and so this, this is uh, the, the humor field. In fact, I, I saw an interesting thing today. I was out in the, in the big shopping center in Cherry Hill in uh, up in Jersey, outside of uh, uh, Philadelphia, Cherry Hill Mall. And they have a beautiful bookstore there, and I, and I was delighted to see in the store you know, writers are that way. They're like, they're like producers of plays, and that they can't help from going around and looking at the box office to see how it's going. And I walked into the bookstore, and there was a stack of my books there. There was seven or eight copies of uh, Ferrari in the bedroom, and then there was also a stack of In God We Trust. All of us pay cash mm -hmm. there too, but it was under the section called Humor, which was a very truncated little section. It was right next to Auto Mechanics. Uh, and, and right on the other side of the mother-in-law cards that they had there. And the section called Humor consisted almost in, in, entirely of reprints of... Uh, there, was a whole, there was a whole new thing today, of big books of reprints of Terry and the Pirates comics and stuff like that. That's what they call humor now. So it would be very difficult. And it, it, it's always been this way, though. Uh, uh, you know, Mark Twain... Died uh, a kind of a bitter guy because he was never accepted as a writer during his lifetime. He, he was thought to be writing just uh, childhood memories. Well, I think your observations are uh, very astute. I'm a devotee of, of paper bookshops. Uh, I can go in and pick up 
10 or 12, and mm -hmm. uh, I like to browse. Uh, and I've noticed they have a science fiction department, they've got a mystery department, they've got a western department, they've got the bestsellers, of course. Uh, and the humor department is usually consists of one or two books put out, one of the Bill Adler books, or an Art Linkletter book. Yeah, that, that's, that's really uh, just a... Uh, or, you know, collections yeah. of... Uh, jokes or something like well, that. Well, see, I, I resent, in a sense, my books being categorized as humor because I write short stories, and if you'll notice, in, uh, Ferrari in the Bedroom consists of a whole series of, of uh, various types of short stories. Uh, there's even two plays in there, by the way. Uh, there's two literary parodies. There's a literary parody on Philip Roth in there called Abercrombie's Bitch, which is a literary parody. Uh, and, 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 and to call it simply humor is to put it into those books, you know, art link letters, funny sayings by kiddies. And, and actually, I think uh, that most good writers today can make you laugh. Joseph Heller makes you laugh. I was going, well, how can you call him humor? That, it, it, would, it would put his book down if you put it in that category. Well, I'm very proud of myself. Uh, one, uh, this must have gone back at least 10 years before Catch-22 became the big hit that it was, and I picked it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, this book was very funny. It is a hilarious... By the way, funny. that never came through in the movie, because the movie became a preachment, and uh, it was a bad movie. I, I thought Mike Nichols uh, missed the entire point of, of the movie, uh, of the book, but that was neither here nor there. Uh, would you say you would prefer to call yourself, if, if you'd like to describe yourself in one word, rather as a humorist, a commentator? No, I'm a writer. I'm neither. The, I'm not a commentator. I think all good writers should comment on the life they lead and and, and lives around them. Uh, because a commentator then makes somebody think, well, what he does is write about the news. He he writes about Vietnam. He discusses uh, last year's election. I don't do those things. And I think our mania towards putting a label on a guy has often caused problems in our time. In other words, would you call, say, uh, Philip Updike a tragedian? Mm, well, that, well, what is he? I mean, uh, You can't describe him in one, one specific word. Well, can you word. describe my work in one word? If you, if you can, you haven't really seriously read me then, uh, because a lot of my stuff... If I would have to describe your works, and, yeah. I, and I, again, with reference to your new book, The Ferrari in the Bedroom, I haven't really looked at it that thoroughly, but I have read I, um, your other books and your, uh, your works in Playboy, mm -hmm. which, of course, are included in the other books. Uh, you are very hard to describe because you are a social commentator, but not a fanatic. You don't have a particular axe to grind. It's just... Uh, well, see, now, now you're hitting an interesting point. You know, a, a real satirist doesn't. In fact, the term satirist today has come to include the polemicist. See, a polemicist does have an axe to grind. A polemicist is either a liberal or he's a conservative. And if he's a liberal, he will attack the conservatives. Uh, if he's a conservative, he will attack the liberals. But a satirist attacks both. Well, I think that's uh, why uh, reading satire, and, and I happen to think good satire is almost totally absent oh, from the American exist. scene. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 
but uh, uh, satire is much more preferable to uh, reading a a, uh, a work by an individual who does have a, a, a an axe to grind or a point of view. Well, I agree. That that uh, that's why uh, when you say uh, I agree that that there is social a great deal of social commentary in my work, and in fact every short story that I write before I write it, uh, I don't sit down with an idea of of writing. Uh, I don't, in other words, I don't say to myself, well, gee, isn't, it's a funny idea. Imagine a funny idea of a guy who suddenly decides that he's going to invent bread that blows up or something. I just take an idea out of the air. My ideas come when I write a story, or tell us, or primarily write a story in this case, come from an attempt to put into words, to attempt to put into a short story, a thing which I've observed in people around me and myself. In other words, a facet of life. For example... Abercrombie's Bitch is the, is the short story that I'm referring to in this case. I have felt for a long time that one of the unsung maladies of our time, I mean a true sickness, we know about alcoholism, we know about drug addiction, we also know about uh, the Don Juan complex, we know about this, but nobody has even yet cataloged gadget addiction. A guy who cannot break himself of the habit of buying gadgets, and it gets to be a sickness, a total sickness, a guy who, and in my short story, this is why I said, I, I, I observed two or three people like this, so I said, that's a, that's a fantastic problem, they, and nobody's even discussed it, and the short story, which is in Ferrari, is about a guy who's in this analyst, and it's written in the form of Portnoy's complaint, and it's written in the form of a psychiatrist making a report on this fantastic case which he's discovered, and he calls it Abercrombie's bitch. He, incidentally, is Abercrombie, the the, uh, the psychiatrist. psychiatrist. Yes, mm -hmm. and 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 the guy is laying on the couch after nine years. This is a, he reports that after nine years, we suddenly had this breakthrough. This guy suddenly says, "Doctor, I can't, I I can't stand it any longer." He says, "Well, what is it?" And he says, "Well, I just I don't know what I should tell you." The doctor says, "Well, I'm your psychiatrist." And that's what I'm here for. He says, well, Doctor, maybe you've wondered about my fantastic drive, how I've become a senior vice president at Flim Flam and Ogilvy, a famous agency. You probably think it's because I really love the agency work and that I'm dedicated to my work, right? The psychiatrist says, well, you've had a fantastic record over there. You work night and day. He says, no, I'll tell you why I made it. I've got a monkey on my back. Do you know I spent over $4,000 last month in Abercrombie and Fitch alone? I've got to pay for it. And he says, what? What are you doing? He says, I've got a, I've got a warehouse in Brooklyn. I hide my stuff over there. I can't take it home. My wife. He says, well, you, you've got to, what do you hide over there? He says, do you know what I have? You know what I bought last week? The doctor says, what? He says, I bought an inflatable doormat that's fully transistorized, and when you step on it, you can hear the sound of dogs barking in the distance. <laughs> and the doctor says, what for? And the patient says, that's the problem! I don't need that damn thing! <laughs> I saw it at Abercrombie and Fitch! I had to have it. 
Easy. Easy. You haven't heard the worst, Doctor. Do you know I have two electronic driving ranges and I don't play golf? <laughs> you know that all I got to do is press a button and an electronic screen flashes any one of 37 major golf courses in the world right in front of me? And I can't stand golf. And he says, you've got two of them? He says, yes, they came up with an improved model. Had to have it. Sober in the warehouse. <laughs> All right. Well, you see, now, isn't that a social commentary, isn't it? That, 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 that's that, beautiful, that, that That's part of, that's one of the short stories. And I'm, I'm performing it for you here. But in the story, there's a lot of footnotes of the, of the psychiatrist making comments and referring to other works. Uh, he, he refers to other works on the subject, and, and it's, a, it's a whole, it's a whole mystique, it's a whole oeuvre in the, in the story. Now, when you ask me about social commentary, that isn't social commentary in the accepted sense today. Today, you have to talk about war. You have to talk about Indians. Uh, you have to, <laughs> you have to put down Nixon. That's called serious social commentary. <laughs> and yet, I think that the gadget Addiction is growing in our country. Have you ever seen these fantastic uh, TV commercials that come on during Christmas? Have you seen those on TV? There, there, there must be a factory that produces only stuff that's sold during Christmas time, and it's made to give to give away. I remember one time uh, being at a house where everybody sat around. It was the day after Christmas, John. And, of course, this was in the Gadget House, and, and this lady had received for Christmas this electronic, transistorized carving knife. <laughs> and they brought out the turkey, John, and she says, we're going to try the knife. Well, she plugged the thing in, and the thing sounded like that, that thing that you talked about on a commercial you used to do years ago, a pillow with a buzzer in it, John. That's right. Do you remember the Niagara commercial you used to do? <laughs> And this thing is shaking, and her hand is going up and down. You can see her glasses jittering on her nose, and she puts this, the blade on the turkey, see? And, of course, the turkey is jumping up and down. We're all sitting there like that, and she's grabbing a hold of it. And her husband says, wait, I'll grab the turkey. Hold it. And she's working like... Fifteen minutes later, the, the knife has worked its way a quarter of an inch into the turkey, and, and the, the cord keeps coming out of the wall, and we suddenly realize this is not to be used as a knife, it's to be used as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, the knife was, was very carefully put away in its velvet case, along with the electronic fork that came with it, by the way. The fork jabs away when you press the button. <laughs> I could see one of those babies getting after you one day, you know, <laughs> running right up the side of you like a turkey. So she put it away, and, and, and two years later, they quietly gave it to one of their relatives for Christmas. That, 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 that knife has seen 17 Christmases since. And it'll eventually get back to the original family or receive it as a gift. Let me interrupt for a moment. <laughs> That's beautiful, Chef. This is Long John Neville with the Long John Neville and Candy Jones Show, and this is WMCA right here in New York City. John, did you did you uh, see who walked into the studio? Yes, I did. The great well, Arnold Bergier. You may not remember this incident, but John, this is a very interesting and important moment to me. Arnold, who's an old friend of yours and mine, a fine sculptor, uh, brought this in and. What this is, it's a, it's a piece of sculpture, as you can see, of a primitive ape or animal. I thought it was Al Lopman at first. Well, of it's, a, it's an interesting piece of work. But you know what this is? That the night that I met him, 
I happened to be on your show a long time ago when you were over on WOR. And he had brought in that night, there were a group of us sitting around. You remember when you used to have the, the, the food set up on the back of the studio? Yes, I do. Fond memories. Right. And he, he had brought in some clay that he had uh, at the table, and he handed me some of this clay. And while we were talking, I made this sculpture, this piece of this animal, and, and Arnold liked it, and he says, I'm going to have that cast. And uh, he did. He had it cast, and this was my first sculpture and my only one. And it was done during one of your shows, and he cast it. And I think it's really something. I think it's really. And he good. brought it for you. He brought it in. I yeah, thought he, he, he was going to bring in. it for me. Did you make one for me? No, he just brought it in tonight, and I'm really surprised how beautifully that came out. Arnold. Come in a minute, Arnie. Uh, take a look at it, John. Gee, that is great. That's a beautiful piece of work, and I'm so amazed. I think he had plastiline <laughs> that night, didn't he? Uh, I don't what know that, what he was using. Was it was a clay. You were working with yeah, plastiline. plastiline. Yeah. yeah it doesn't make quite as much of a mess on your carpet. My own Jeez. carpet I don't care about, but yeah. he's very, he's very this fussy. This is really great. You know, uh, I remember... Uh, don't you remember that? Yes, I do you now. See, I mean, you know, you've been talking about Gene Shepard, the philosopher, Gene Shepard, the... The commentator, Gene Shepard, the humorist, Gene, Gene Shepard, the writer, the author, and everything. <laughs> yeah. And nobody's mentioned a word about Gene Shepard's adventures in rhyme. Well, he well, I've always been never, never, never mentioned those or drawings. Those are my drawings. Yeah, in, in the, the book. book. I, I have in front of me uh, some notes, and I've got here one word, sketches, with two exclamation points after it. I was well, going to ask you about sketches. Tell no, me. they're not sketches at all. <laughs> sketches, no way. No, he draws, he draws in, unless he's changed in the years since I've seen him, but uh, Shep draws in a single line, which, by the way, calls for ex an extreme amount of courage and discipline. And he says in one line as he goes along, that's about all there is to say. Now, this is not the same thing as a sketch. A sketch is where you dash something off quickly and in haste. But his drawings aren't done that quickly or that no, hastily. In fact, They're uh, very carefully there's done. There's one drawing, Arnold, I'd like to show you. Can, you. can I have the book over here for a minute, Alan? Uh, uh, there's a drawing here I think you'll appreciate, Arnold. Very nice. Uh, yeah, I'm sure glad you came in. And that's true. I'm very serious about my drawing. And I don't... Uh, it's on page... Uh, uh, let me see here. Uh, by the way, do you recognize the one opposite page 124? Do you recognize uh, the street corner? Let me see in just one minute. Do you recognize that drawing? I mean, that... Oh, I do indeed. This is Sheridan Square. That's correct. Where else? And um, there's a lamp post that says one way pointing <laughs> south toward where Carmine de Sapio used to live. Exactly. Uh, or rather where his... Now, his there's was. another drawing on page 114, opposite 114. I tried to capture the essence of the New York brownstone in that drawing. Well, uh, yes, except I think this little brownstone had a little more love in it, and I'm trying to remember where this one might be. Fifth Avenue, possibly. In fact, you're exactly amazing uh, accuracy. That was that was a, a brownstone on 53rd Street, mm. right opposite the New York, uh, the Museum of Modern Art, just off of Fifth Avenue. Mm. It's not there anymore, is it? No, it isn't. But do you recall the building then? Well, do you remember my battles to save these? I things? do indeed. That was a beautiful. Now, there's another drawing in here though that has a real story behind it. As an as an artist, I think you'll appreciate this story. Uh, I'm trying to find where it is now. It's under... No. By the way, there's an interesting one. You as a sculptor may find interesting opposite page 52. Page 52. 
I haven't seen the book yet. I see, this is quite an adventure to me, John. Opposite page 52. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, uh, that's it. This Did you see this? Isn't this something? Uh, this is what happens when you put all the lights over in the corner before you turn That's them right. On. That was sketched in, the, in, the, in Studio 8 at CBS before I was going on a TV show, and I felt that those cluster of lights on a TV show, the, the, the great cluster of, of Kleegs, to me, looked like a really, a truly, a modern sculptor in their own right. Even a, modern... a three-pronged plug. Yeah. Well, I mean, more than a modern sculpture, I mean, the fact that uh, modern sculptures are uh, assemblages of the things of our time so frequently, and they have a meaning, I guess. No, for... there's one other drawing I really want you to look at, and that's on page 165. Mm -hmm. 165. All of these are in the book, incidentally. Absolutely beautiful. 165. I've long been an enthusiast of uh, Gene Shepard. Well, uh, now, line drawings, I love I love them. I love to look at them now. Isn't that... Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, when everybody's gone home and they're laying the tarpaulins on the field, and uh, the stadium looks like the Yankees haven't been making it lately. That's right. That's a drawing of the Yankee Stadium. And, and you know, with the story of that, I'd like to tell you a little story behind that, that drawing, Arnold. Mm. That drawing is made on a Yankee napkin. You see the Yankee insignia down on the lower yes, corner? Yeah. Yeah. That was drawn on a Yankee napkin, the kind they wrap around a hot dog that you get there. And it's a big drawing. I, I opened up the napkin. The drawing's about 24 by 14. It's a big one. And it was drawn in about four minutes. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's what it yeah. says, right? But you know how? You know why it was drawn that that drawing? Why? Well, well no. it's a funny story. Uh, I was up in the press box. The, the the stadium was empty, as you can see. It's absolutely mm -hmm. empty. We were up in the press box, and I was with another artist who, up to that point, he's a really fine artist. In fact, you know his work. I'll tell you his name later. And, and we were looking down over this panorama, and he says, God, he says, if I can only get that down. And I said, well... I said, you can get it down in line, but you have to be, you have to have a certain attitude. And he says, well, he says, that can't be drawn, that stadium. I says, watch. And I took this napkin and I drew it for him just as a demonstration. And I've always loved that drawing since. You know who the artist was? Leroy Neiman. Oh, for heaven's sake. And that was when Neiman had just, in fact, he wasn't even involved in, in art or sports drawings at that time. He had done nothing but, uh, he'd just come back from France and had done, uh, uh, mostly paintings of bars and, and people in bars and elegant soirees and... and uh, well, you know, that, that can lead you into a whole way of looking at the world, and no wonder he said that you couldn't draw Yankee Stadium. There's a heck of a lot of difference between the space in a bar and the space in Yankee Stadium, and you know what you do when you draw, you're capturing space. You're capturing right. space, that's a little thing about yay big, you know, big enough to wipe your mouth on, really, what you did. <laughs> well, 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 capturing space, is that's a great description of a drawing. Uh, uh, you know how I started to draw, Arnold, and now that we're bringing that subject up, my father, and, uh, and I don't think I've ever talked to you about my father back in Chicago, oh, John. Sure. Uh, well, he was a cartoonist. No, that I didn't. That's right. Uh, my father, by the way, my real father, yeah, as opposed to Essex owner wasn't. As opposed to my fictional father. Remember, oh. I'm a fiction writer, and yeah, I and I've created a fictional father, and a fictional mother, and a fictional friends, and uh, they're not really my friends. It's like I think like Mark Twain created Tom Sawyer. He never knew a Tom Sawyer, but he created him. And my real father was an interesting man. He, he, 
he was basically an artist and, and in fact before I was born had studied cartooning and, and drawing at the Chicago Museum of Art mm -hmm. well uh, I came along and uh, he had gotten a job working as a cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune Art uh, but he was working in the editorial cartoon world in other words, he didn't. He wasn't a comic cartoonist. He did. He he did work for the one of the great cartoonists was John McCutcheon. Yes, that's right. That's one of the most. Isn't that the stuff. Indian Summer? That's right. My father worked oh, yeah. as one of three uh, young cartoonists under him, and he would come in. He's this famous cartoonist. He would be like Herb Block of today, or some great, uh, or or like uh, Bill Maulman or something. He came in oh, almost like a TV star. They were very highly regarded. Oh yes, day. he was an elegant man, and he would come in and he would. He would give my father an assignment. I want you to draw the the. Uh, uh, I want you to draw the, the the city for the background, and over here you draw John uh, Public and so on. And then he would go out. Well, he earned about three dollars a week or something, and he had a hell of a time surviving. And he finally gave up because I came along and my brother was born, and he could not earn a living at it. And so he took he went to work for another company. Went to work for Borden's, as a matter of fact, but. Here's where it comes in, the, the, the drawing. From the time I was a child, Arnold, I mean a very small child, before I went to school, my dad was such a, he loved to draw so much that when I would, I would be drawing, like a, you know, a kid draws, my dad would say, now look, I'm going to show you how to draw that. And he, he, he would teach me to draw what I saw with my eye rather than with my mind. Most people know this cup is is cylindrical shape. The mind says that. But when you look at it, because you know it isn't mm -hmm. cylindrical. And, and from the time I was about three, I drew before I really could read. And by the, I mean, drew really well. And by the time I was eight or nine or ten, drawing to me was as natural as walking or reading. And I've never lost it. And I, and I always say that drawing is, 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 you're right, it's a way of looking at the world. But it, it's hard to tell which comes first. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, I guess, but it's, no. if you're taught, you, you begin to look at the world. I think that, that people should be taught to draw early in their life because it teaches them to really look at their world. They have to look at their world. You know, I, I have a big drawing of yours framed in my living room. I, get, I remember giving it to you. A long time ago, when I was still at OR. Well, you know, it's funny about drawing. Uh, I like to give people drawings if they appreciate them. And, and Arnold knows that everybody wants you to give them some free work. Yes, indeed. And they never, they, they put it under their desk if you give it to them free and it winds up back of the sofa. And I fool them. I give them a six-foot sculpture and they can't put that's it under right. their desk. And, and that's right. When it happens, I mean, I like them well <laughs> enough. And they wonder what the devil are going to... By the way, I still have a crayon work that you did one night at OR. You had a number of, uh, not pencil, but, well, I guess called crayon pencils. And you were just sort of a... Uh, Fooling around there. And that's the story. And of my I took life. that mm -hmm. and I had it framed and I have that. The story of every artist. Matter of fact. Well, I, I have never known that. you helped me hang when you had Well, that's true. You had never? problems with your arrangement because so many artists brought you a tribute. Said, boy, you've got a whole wall full of them. I haven't seen the wall lately. Uh, and uh, your bride is probably going to rearrange it and hang some things of her own. You know, I had a friend, uh, well, I still have him as a friend, God bless him, and you both know him. You know uh, John Scott? Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. You know, sure. You, yeah. And love John Scott, yeah, yeah. as I do, I hope. 
Uh, when his bachelor days, uh, some years back, I went up to his house one night. We were all feeling maybe better than usual. Uh, we were all sort of staving off a cold, as a matter of fact, that night. And um, I got involved in doing a big mural on his wall. And I drew John as a, as a centaur reading the news to an admiring circle of lovely little nymphs. You know, turned this way and that. And there wasn't anything really vulgar about the drawing, not even the centaur. Because, you know, I mean, he's a doll of a guy, and I don't think he's ever said a vulgar word in his whole life. Very elegant. <laughs> uh, and uh, he admired this drawing. He loved it. And we, we sprayed it, fixed it, or something like that. And uh, he lived with it for about a month. And then he met a girl. Uh, and... Um, I remember coming to visit him about two weeks after he met this girl, and we walked in. The drawing was gone off the wall. The wall was repainted. And on the mantelpiece, <laughs> there were two little pictures of Paris, you know, done under Saint-Sulpice, and uh, a uh, view of Place Pigalle, where the tourists yeah. all go. And um, they were perhaps a, sli a slightly better class of pastiche. They probably cost $18 a piece instead of 12 over there. <laughs> and they're on the mantelpiece, and that's how his taste was going to be for the next ten years. Uh, I always think that... Uh, he offered those two to me for three bucks a piece. Did he? Just recently he called me and wanted to know if I wanted to buy them. I well, it shouldn't have been a total loss. That's quite true. Um, you can tell a great deal about a woman in terms of what she does with the art in your home. Well, that's very true. Well, now, are you putting candy down already without even well, being no, back in the apartment? No, in your case, you might very well elevate your taste, I should imagine. Because Judging from some of the stuff he used to have around yeah, the office, that would be hard. I'll tell you. I mean, <laughs> I mean he's got, he's got a he has the greatest collection of SO service station calendars I've ever seen in my life. Yes, he does. <laughs> he loves that stuff. But without borders, bleed, you know. Right on Terrible. The, uh, right. I don't really think that he um, is... is uh, is noted for his taste in art. He's got all these things in the wall because of all the people he knows. And John knows a great many wonderful people and some who aren't. But he loves us all and our things are on his wall. Right. Not, not, really not because of their artistic value. Absolutely. Oh. We understand that. In fact, I remember a guy coming in the office one day and saying to John, how come he had all this stuff and all this stuff? How come there are no nudes up there? And John says, well, I don't believe the nudes on the wall. And the guy says, well, that's art. That's beautiful stuff. In fact, it was Bob Alton. Oh, yeah. John, says, John says, well, I don't think sex is a spectator sport, Bob. He says, I believe in participation. <laughs> and it was one of the best lines I've heard in a long time about the... <laughs> it's something that happens in the back of the Pontiac, not on a center fold-out. You know? That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. God, That's a raunchy crew of people here tonight. This, is, this is not an aesthetic group here, Arnold, tonight. No, I mean, I've, I'm not under any such illusions. I, but I did feel that the sculpture that you, that you had done, which I've cherished all this time, was something that really shouldn't be wasted in this world. My studio by this time is such a cluttered place that you don't see it at first. You walk in, and, you know, there's all this stuff all around the place, and you wonder if it's going to fall on you. And, and all of a sudden, way over there under all this other junk in the corner, your gorilla peers out at us. Well... It's a fine thing to discover after about <laughs> half an hour's effort, but people are frightened by that time, and I often thought, that, you know, it should be in a better place. Have you, have you ever gotten any comments on it? Oh, yes. Lots of people ask me, well, whatever made you do a sculpture like that? And I say, well, I didn't do that sculpture. <laughs> but, uh, 
The chap didn't do it. I didn't know he did sculpture. So as far as I know, he doesn't do any more sculpture. No, that's true. I haven't. It's, you know. I really think you should, you know. You, 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 you should quit when you're ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, you should see the stuff that that guy painted after the Mona Lisa. My God, it was a bunch of claptrap. Well, had he quit. Uh, by the way, I wonder how many of us have had that experience. Uh, it's a friend of mine wrote a, wrote a book here a few years ago, and, and it was a, a critical uh, bestseller, I mean, critical acclaim. And then he had the illusion that he was a writer. And he tried to write the second one, and they caught up with him. They'll do it every time. George Ade, in, in fact, had a famous line about that. He says, you, you wrote a book about George Ade. Yes, George Ade said, when you've hit your home run, leave the field. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come up in the, in the eighth <laughs> inning. <laughs> That's where it's at. Well, well it's good to good. see you, Arnold. You're looking great. Well, you feel very well indeed these days. You look like you've just gotten off your tug. Uh, you know, <laughs> down in the East Room. No, as a matter of fact, I left the whole scene back in the... Back in 82nd Street. I can't afford the village anymore after saving it, you know. So, uh, I'm up in 82nd Street. I'm still down in the village fighting the good fight. I've got to take care of a couple of pieces of business. Will you wait till time? I want to ask you a question about something. Yes, I I do want to talk to you, too. And if you want to pay me the money you owe me or you want to leave a go till next week. That's what he was going to ask you about, John. (laughs) Go ahead. Let's get that business here. Dialogue Radio 57. WMCA right here in New York City. And now back with Gene Shepard and uh, Alan Cornett. My name, Long John Neville. Alan? May yes, I say pardon something me. before Mr. <coughs> Cornett gets going here? Uh, as a professional, I have always admired your commercials. Yeah, but you're making the money. John, True art is never honestly appreciated. You think that's my problem? That's right. Money has nothing to do. You know, John, you have an ecclesiastical quality. You have, you have. Lacks of because of my religious training. Well, that's what I was going to say. That your commercials have have the have the sound of of the delivery of a great pulpit orator. Mm-hmm. They have the beat and the tempo of biblical writing. They do. There's a build. There's and and I like at that point when there's where there's this this the quaver of a man calling for people to come to salvation at the, at just before the end of the commercial. Did you see the light during that commercial? John, you have sold me everything from wigs to, to pillows that have buzzers in them. And, 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 and you know that one night, you, I was driving along the Jersey Turnpike, and you got me, I'll tell you, uh, that commercial kept beating out of that car radio. It was raining outside. And the counterpoint between this this magnificent uh, biblical oratorical delivery. You know what it reminds me of? Did you ever read, uh, you probably read uh, Arnold's Moby Dick. Yes. There's a fantastic pulpit scene when the preacher uh, delivers a a tremendous oration on salvation in the opening chapters of Moby Dick. It was Orson Welles. Well, that was Orson Welles, but Orson Welles didn't do it the way the book did it, which even... No way. No way. And, and, and I'm always reminded of that about two-thirds of the way through one of your commercials when you really start going, John. And one night on the turnpike, there was you were doing a commercial for fruitcake. Right. But this wasn't any fruitcake that you were selling. You were selling literally uh, a, a, a food that must have been served at the Last Supper. It was. 
And, and, <clears throat> and, and you know, fruitcake never gets stale. That's why we still have some. John, uh, John, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the chapter and verse that you work out of, I don't, I think it comes from Psalms. But about two-thirds of the way through this, this tremendous adventure in, in salvation, I'm driving along the turnpike, and John, you know, I had to forcibly restrain myself from leaping out of the car and rushing to one of those emergency phones and calling that place in Texas where they sell those fruitcakes to order one. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like fruitcake. But well, it's nice to it's nice to have on the mantle, isn't you it? You were lucky they don't have many telephones along the turnpike. I know just what you mean. <laughs> no, John, because John, you're irresistible. John, he used to get me every night with a spot. He would say, he would say, it's like a thousand tiny, tiny fingers. fingers gently stroking, leading, stroking your backbone. <laughs> he says, now I don't want any of you to mistake this. Not a hundred, but a thousand tiny fingers. He said. What he got me was not with the fingers, no, because he was saying this: it's a thousand tiny fingers working up and down your backbone. He says, now I don't want you to mistake this with. Any of these cheap jack devices that consist of a buzzer and a pillow. And, and you know, this image of a buzzer and a pillow used to get me. I used to say, where the hell can I get one of those pillows with a buzzer in it? I would like to have one of those. Plug in my pillow and have a buzzer so. Chip, you know, I'm glad you made this confession because I didn't dare tell a soul. You know, I mean, I'm supposed to be up here once in a while on a show with all these guys, and I'm supposed to be sophisticated and all. But when he starts to croon to me, I get to be the biggest mark of all. I must have bought half a dozen things that he suggested. I mean, every time I... Satisfied with every one. Every one. Well, now I can make the confession. I've been sending you for it under an assumed name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not alone. I just wish I had a product that I could hire him to sell for me. When John's voice gets that filled, you know, it's, it's really funny. Is. See, as, yeah. as a kid, I used to go, there was, uh, down at the end of the street, we had a vacant lot, Arnold, and, and about every two or three months in the summertime, there would be this guy show up, and he would start, it was an evangelist tent. And we used to go down there. You know, it was just the kids. It was a place to go. See, we'd sit down there in the crowd, and he would begin. He would begin like John. You know, this John always begins softly. Yes. He starts out. He says something like this: "Have you heard of the new blue widgets?" He pauses for a moment. He says, "Now, I'm not talking about any widget. I'm not talking about those cheap pink widgets." Or those ridiculous orange widgets. I'm talking about blue widgets. Well, of course, at this time, you're leaning forward. And by the time he hits his full stride, he looks right down that aisle and says, I want all of you to come forward. I want you to admit and confess that you have not experienced the blue widgets. Come forward and send me your name and your address right this minute now. And then there's a slow pause, and he, he, he drops off, he builds off. He says, no, I'm not going to ask you to send a dollar at this time. I'm telling you to send your name and your address. Remember, folks, it's the blue widget. There's a long, stunned silence out there, and I can just see those penitents marching forward, John, down that sawdust trail, tears streaming down their cheeks. 
I mean, there are guys with four heads of hair tonight that have bought wigs. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? He's right. Gene, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to tell you this. One of, one, one of John's recent sponsors is Renell, the hairstylist. Yes. And he had a man come in with a wig. To have it restyled by Renault. Listen, that's nothing. There was two guys went in there the other day totally bald. <laughs> they have their head style. <laughs> All this levity aside, you know, I've heard you, Shep, uh, say one thing some years back, which I think uh, was a very meaningful thing, meaningful idea. You were talking about the state of television shortly after it was declared a vast wasteland. And um, you were saying, I think, in a sense, that you really agreed with uh, what they said in terms of the content, and I suppose any sensitive man would. Uh, but you said there was a great value to television which many people overlook. And you may correct me if I'm mistaken in quoting you, but I think you said, uh, if you really want to know what the state of this country is, don't pay any attention to the programs, but pay close attention to the commercials. That's Absolutely. just where it is. You know? As a matter of fact, I'm right now, now that you bring that, it's a fantastic thing, uh, coincidence you brought that up, because I'm working on a piece now, a short story, really, that was commissioned by, well, actually, the group that, that now runs the, owns the Saturday Review of Literature, and it's a short story about the commercial as the major artwork of our time. And in fact, it probably will be one of the most meaningful things that we will have left behind us about our life. In other words, and I'm not putting commercials down nor exalting them, but I am saying that a commercial does talk about the fears of the average walking around guy. Mm, and so... Does. If you watch our commercial, you will realize that the average guy is really worried. The average guy, I mean man, woman, or child, is really worried. About, More concerned say, about the state of his armpit than about the state of his soul. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, he, is, he is really concerned as to whether or not his breath offends. Yeah. Uh, he, is, he is also concerned, curiously enough, about tea stains in the sink. Now that's it. Norman Mailer has never mentioned this in any of his novels, and nor has Philip Roth. And yet it seems to exist as a real problem because I see that lady plumber week after week exercising tea stains. Now, that's, by the way, another interesting thing, I think that many of us feel a sense of unrest today, Arnold, because our lives do not measure up to the people in the commercials. Seriously. I'm talking about the life they lead. For example, have you ever called a plumber to your home? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sculptor. Well, all right, that's right. You yes, as a matter of fact, we did, and that's why I became a plumber in my own right. Well, all right, but the point I'm making at, the only time you'll ever call a plumber in your home that I've ever called is usually it's already up to your knickers by the time the plumber right. arrives, and it ain't a tea stain. No way. <laughs> and, 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 and it's really dramatic. No. <laughs> no. If you can yeah. be as so rich that you call the plumber because you've got tea stains in the sink and not even seem to be concerned over that fact, that is... And you measure life. For example, I, I think that the little dramas we see on television in many ways make us feel how inadequate our lives are. An example, have you ever seen this commercial where the lady comes on 
She's got her hair, looks like a kind of a yellow football hand. It's a strange looking scene. Right, yeah. her, her shot, for direct shot, her face is right on camera. And she appears to be visiting somebody. She is in somebody else's john. Because she, she's looking around kind of questioningly, and then suddenly she looks down and she says, Blue water! You seen that one where she says, Blue water? Oh, that's a very famous commercial. At which point she turns around and takes the back off the john in her friend's house. And there inside the john is a little guy rowing around in a rubber rowboat. Yeah, you seen that guy? Sure. And at that point she says, Blue water to him. And he waves and says, Yes. Well, anybody watching that is going to say, Now, if you've got the kind of mind I have, John. The minute she said blue water, you would immediately say, my God, somebody is in trouble in that family. We had lectures in the Army about that. When college, if you went to college and, and joined a fraternity, somebody always gave some of the boys a methylene blue pill. Well, that's not was, exactly what I'm referring to, Arnold. Yes, I understand. <laughs> I was trying to lead you gently. Oh, no. And, oh, and, yeah. and I, think, I think to myself, you know, when I see a scene of a woman looking in the back of a John and she sees a three-inch high man rolling around in a rubber rover. He's even got a yachting cap now, you know. And she asks him about the water. And I think to myself, what the devil would I do tonight if I found a three-inch high guy rolling around in my john? Would I be so cool as to ask him about the color of the water? <laughs> or would I scream, my God, there's a three-inch high guy in the john. Look at him. Now, that's the essence of the liberal philosophy. Never admit to a person's physical deformities. Well, I don't quite know how you meant that, but I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's so, I mean, if he throws John, that's his thing. What, yeah. what I've always wondered about are all the, the married uh, men of America who uh, sit in their offices every day and wonder if uh, at home they their wives really have a giant in their washer. Well, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I don't quite see it that way, Alan. I, I think that a lot of women uh, who go out to the appliance store and buy a washer are disappointed to find that it doesn't have a giant in it. And really, that's the way I would look at it. They figure that somebody else down the street's got the one with the big fist that comes out. Yeah, that's bothered me. Uh, you know that large fist that comes straight out? Yeah. What happens if you, if you happen to buy a washer that's a front loader? Well, it's a foot. Lots of things happen. Catches you just below the belt, right in yeah. a sensitive spot. Often. Yeah, my but, gosh. But, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, like you see TV roads, for example, Alan. I think beautiful. a television road is just a beautiful thing to, to observe. There's never any traffic. Uh, and if there is, there are all these beautiful cars with women riding on, in them with their hair streaming out behind. And yet, it, it, the sad reality that you go out to, you've just bought your new car two days before, and, you know, and, 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 and on the commercial you saw it, it was fantastic. This, this, this cougar is always on top of it. God, what an exciting thing. And you go out and buy one. And two days later, you're standing in the traffic on 49th Street. You've been there for six, seven hours, you know, between 3rd Avenue and Fourth Avenue or something, and there's a thick coating of grime that's drifted over from Jersey. 
somebody's written a four-letter word on the trunk at the parking lot. <laughs> and an Airedale will stop by the left rear tire, you know, use the facilities there. And here you are sitting in your magnificent new car, and you notice that the hood is jiggling up and down, and you discover it's made of Reynolds wrap. And you begin to believe that the other guy's got the real car. Somehow, you know, nobody ever blames the manufacturer. It's that I am personally, personally uh, unworthy that the other guy got the real cougar. How many times have you seen people who've tried right guard and it doesn't work? And he figures, well, the other guy, they got the real can of right guard. And I went to this second-rate store. You ever had the feeling that you didn't get the right shaving cream? You know those imitation. guys? Yeah, yeah. You ever know those guys that shave on TV? Shaving is positively fun on TV. <laughs> Guy takes this little candy, you know, <laughs> a little spritz in the hand, and he sniffs it. And he says, <laughs> I tried that stuff, and it smells like fermented cranberry. <laughs> and, <laughs> And you know, you, 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 you put it on. I, I've tried all of them. They're all the same. You put the stuff on, you know, you start shaving. There's a little thin spritz of blood, you know. Yeah. And you say, well, God, you know. My face isn't their kind of face. They just shave underneath, you know, three or four swipes like that. And all of these things produce in the person's mind a sense of great unease. If you notice TV refrigerators, they open them up. They're spick and span. There's only beer in them. I open my refrigerator and this yellow brown lettuce falls out, rolls around on the floor. It, it, and I notice that, that way in the back always there's a thing that's growing in the back of my refrigerator, Arnold. It's back there and rumbles at you. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's a green fungus, and I'm afraid to get near it. And 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 I I, I opened and the other day I I swear Arnold I opened up the you know there's a vegetable bin at the bottom and all these these butt ends of, of onions have drifted down in there and I swear a hand came out of that I closed it now <laughs> I'm going to seal that refrigerator up and just push it out on the street one day and start all over but you never see a refrigerator. Like a real refrigerator on TV. See, especially like, like ours. Xi Hing, you know, has a kitchen that's like a museum. He's, you know, a Chinese cook. They bite dried lily buds and oysters with one eye and uh, all kinds of strange Squids, animals, squids, and all yeah. these things. They're all dried and brown looking and look kind of angry in all their little boxes. And she gets a refrigerator because, you know, as a Chinese person, the one thing that, that really gets them, the one with big fear they have is that somebody's going to come over and they don't have anything to offer to eat. Mm. So when she opens the refrigerator door, her thing is like Fibber McGee's closet. Whoa, the, the problem is how to keep everything in there. Well, you're lucky you have stuff in yours, but I have these objects. I don't know what it is. I, uh, there was, there's been a half a bottle of, of, I don't know how it got in there. There's a half a bottle of Hoffman's Club Soda. I don't know how it got there. I've never used club soda. I don't know why it's there. The other day, I opened the refrigerator, and, and I, as I opened it, just as I opened it, the, the, the relay kicked off in the refrigerator, and it started. Now, when my refrigerator starts, it's it jiggles the apartment all the way down to the ground floor. It goes, and it hit it just the same time when I opened it. Yeah. And that damn bottle of Hoffman Club Soda bounced out and hit me a shot below the knee, and I, I, I finally says, I'm going to throw it away. See, and I picked it up, and I I looked at that thing, and you know, the strange thing about this bottle, 
It's a collector's item. I realize that bottle has not type of bottle. It's not been used since the early 1900s. Now, how it got in my refrigerator, I don't know. But you never see this on TV. Never. I'll bet there are people listening to us tonight that have been unable to open their freezer compartment for over four years. It's one mass of white yeah. ice. Yeah. Ice shot, yeah. It's just like that, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> We keep the blowtorch in the kitchen, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't see that kind of realism on TV commercials. So no. people tend to think that their life is unfortunately... Uh, out of step with the lives of the, you know, the real people. Well, gentlemen, I, I do have to take a moment. Oh, God, here we go again. John, what is it this time?